got to say, I am excited to be gathering worship, albeit, if I'm being honest, a little sore from the men's retreat. Thankful to all the men who were out at that. Thankful to the men who put that together. It was a great time of fellowship, discipleship, and manly things. Good times had by all. I'd ask the guys to uh, give a big manly grunt of appreciation, but I'd be afraid the ladies would put us to shame next week after their retreat when they did the same. So we'll leave it at that for this week. But I am excited. Hopefully you've been blessed by the worship this morning. I am privileged to be able to open God's word with you. And to get into the passage that we have for this morning, I want to put before you two very different problems. And I want you to see if you can tell how they're related. Think with me for a second. So problem number one, if we're being honest about our faith, we find it all too easy to reduce Christianity to all these do's and don'ts. And then we find ourselves surprised that we often lack the power to follow through on all those do's and don'ts. Is that a common problem you've experienced in your faith? We start getting it down to just do this, don't do this, and it's just about commands and prohibitions. So that's problem one that we face very often in our faith. Here's problem two. All too often, we, we find ourselves getting, if we're being honest, bored by theology, or at the very least, wondering why it's relevant. Why is it we talk about all these details about how all these truths of Scripture fit together when they aren't the do's or don'ts telling us how to live? We know it's important, but well, we can see that we have difficulty sometimes seeing why it's important. Those are two different problems about Christianity, but they have one connection between them that is very important, that is going to be very foundational what we're going to see in God's Word today. Matter of fact, not just this passage, but the next two that follow, the next couple times I'll get to be in First Thessalonians, are going to be following the same thread, this same problem. Do you see what it is yet? Well, if not, my prayer is it will be abundantly clear to you by the time we're done here this morning. <clears throat> so these four verses are where Paul and his companions writing this letter are finally getting to the core problem they need to address with the Thessalonians. And it's going to make sense of everything else in the back part of this letter. From chapter 4 all the way to the end of 5, the stuff they really are getting down to. Now, it's been a couple months since we've been in 1 Thessalonians, and I was, it's been about a year since I started teaching through this book. So some of you were not around when we started it. Some of you have slept since then. So I figure it was worthwhile spending just a couple minutes situating where we are in the book of 1 Thessalonians, giving some context uh, to, for what we're going over here. So the background, you should know by now, hopefully if you've been in hearing this, because I've kind of tried to go over it a couple times, the Thessalonian church is the one that Paul and his companions planted back in Acts chapter 17 as they're doing one of their missionary journeys. The people love, you know, take to it. The word flourishes. They get this exciting, vibrant congregation. But then the opponents of the gospel drive Paul and his companions out after probably only about three weeks. Now, bear in mind, Paul was used to planting churches and discipling people there for a year or two or three. So the fact that he got kicked out after three weeks means there were all kinds of things he didn't get to say to them, all kinds of ways he didn't get to disciple them. That shouldn't be the norm. 
If we're discipling somebody, if we are blessed to be able to lead someone to Christ and disciple them in the basics of the faith, if we're giving up on them and cutting them loose after three weeks, we are failing. It's not that the gospel takes three weeks to explain. It's that God's word has so much more in it. There's so much more that we need to know to know what to do now that we have that gospel, who God is, how that's supposed to be changing us, how to represent him well to the world, all that. That discipleship process is not a hit and run kind of thing. So Paul didn't get to do that. That's why he writes 1 Thessalonians, kind of trying to do this from a distance while he can't be there in person. So you have these very sincere but baby believers that he's addressing here. And so in chapters 1 through 3, Paul and his companions are trying to reassure the Thessalonians of several things. They're reassuring them that, hey, we were the real deal. We were sincere with you guys. I know we left, didn't get to stick around, but we were showing you genuine care. We weren't taking advantage of you like all these other hucksters that travel around. So you see a lot of that in chapters 1 and 2. A little bit of chapter 3. I want to reassure the Thessalonians that their faith is real. Here's all the evidence we saw in your lives. We see that all throughout chapters 1 through 3. Yes, I know you didn't have long for us to pump you up and reassure you, but trust us, we've seen the evidence. We believe God really did a work in you. So you can live it out in confidence. And he wanted to reassure them, they want to reassure them that these guys really do want to come back and finish that discipleship. They really do want to finish what they started However, in the meantime, we're going to settle for discipleship by correspondence. Okay? Now we're in the last couple chapters, 4 and 5, and that's when they're really getting to do the discipleship they intended to with the letter. First three chapters are very relational. Last two chapters are really diving in and trying to help these guys out. So they're discipling about, about different areas they need to grow. For example, we looked in July at their need to grow in sexual purity. That was a deficient area in their behavior and theology. <clears throat> Excuse me. Today, we're going to look at how they need to grow in love and in their witness. That's where we're going to be parked today. The next couple sections deal with their need to grow in eschatology. Sounds like a random thing to hit. We'll talk about why. And then you get to the end of the chapter, a lot more smaller concerns they address and exhort them in that are too numerous to list. But I love these last two chapters. You get this delicate balance from Paul and his companions of encouraging these brand new believers who are on fire for Christ in their faithfulness and the zeal they've shown, while also admonishing and teaching them to grow in the areas they're still deficient. Like I've been saying all along through First Thessalonians, there's a lot for us to learn about our own discipleship. Look at the model that Paul and his companions are setting for us. When discipling newer believers, yes, you need to encourage them. They need that being built up in their brand new faith. Yes, you need to admonish them. They need to know that they need to still keep growing and not think just because they got the basics, they're set. We need both. Okay? Too often we do one or the other. It's all attaboys and people stagnate, or it's all harsh, you got to get it together and people get discouraged. You need both. That's real love. That's discipleship that every person in this room is called to do. It's not just for the pastors. Don't get me wrong. I love discipleship. But God intends for all of his people to be doing that. So, 
Where we are today, Paul and his companions are starting this new section by once again, they're praising the Thessalonians for their love, but they're also again encouraging them to excel still more. Take a look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 4 with me. Okay, He says, Now as the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So if you punch it down, into the, if you pull apart the Greek, you see there's this transition phase where they're very obviously starting a new section, a new thing they're addressing from this last section in the first eight verses. Yet, they bring back this phrase of excel still more that they already used earlier. So there is some linkage here, even though there are different topics they're talking about. There's a related problem between what they just talked about in the first eight verses and what they're talking about here in these next four verses. There's going to be more on that later. Hang tight. I'll explain what that connection is here in a little bit. But I want to look at what he's actually exhorting them to here. Why is he exhorting them? What's going on behind this? First of all, they're not just flattering the Thessalonians by praising their love for fellow believers. There's ample evidence of that. When they're saying the Thessalonians are practicing love to all believers in all Macedonia, realize what they're saying. This is the ancient world when travel was not easy. You couldn't hop on your car and go to the next town in a few minutes. They were in Thessalonica. Macedonia was the name of the entire province of the Roman Empire that they were a part of. So they're saying, you're not just doing a good job loving your body of believers. You're doing a good job loving your entire region. That's, that's high praise. This is consistent with how they were praising Thessalonians at the beginning of the letter, for example. Uh, we saw back in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, he mentioned you know, that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, another region. And it details what their witness is. Their faith toward God has gone forth. Okay, They were living their Christian lives out, not just for themselves, not just for their families, not just for their church, not even just for their city, but even for surrounding regions. They were doing a good job in having real love for the believers all around them. Okay, Understand, we need to establish this because it's going to make... That much more powerful what he's trying to say they still need to do. Uh, this is also can chapter three. We also saw a praise and an exhortation for them for their love specifically. Um, he talks about how Timothy went and brought back the good news, good news of their faith and love. Timothy was saying, "Yeah, these guys got it." And Paul's still admonishing. He's praying for them in verse twelve. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. Their love, they were doing a good job, but was still a central concern. Okay, so they got this down, right? Paul, Silas, Timothy, you can leave these guys alone. They've got love down. Yet, he's telling excel still more. Take it a step further. When he tells them they're excelling in their love, he uses the term for love of the brethren, Philadelphia. Yes, that's where we get Philadelphia from, which everybody knows Philadelphia is the city of. Have you ever been there? But, in name anyway, city of brotherly love, right? So we understand Philadelphia means love of the brethren, brotherly love. That's what that word means. We're familiar with that term because of the city, right? 
We know that term. However, what we don't realize is we take for granted this whole we're brothers and sisters in Christ and kick that language around. When Paul and his buddies are using that word here, that was actually like making a big point. The Greeks did not kick that word around lightly. They had other words for love. You didn't use this word for anybody outside of your family. Philadelphia was the love for your family, just like the people in your family you love differently than people in other walks of life. That's a special, unique kind of love. So when Paul says that's describing how you love your church, that's significant. That's countercultural. That's radical. That you love people with a love that only your household should experience. To love people that much, that's the Christian calling. He says, you have it. Good job, Thessalonians. You have something the culture around you doesn't understand. They think it's weird and inappropriate how much you love the people in your church, and even the whole region of believers. It's high praise. So why the criticism? Why the exhortation? What's missing here? So clearly, they love well. Two possible reasons why he's still giving this exhortation to excel still more. First of all, let's get straight here. All of us as believers, no matter what our spiritual victories are here on earth, we're still falling short of God's standard, right? We've never arrived this side of heaven. So no matter what our spiritual strengths are, we don't get permission to abandon striving for greater sanctification. So that exhortation is always appropriate to excel in whatever areas, to be by God's spirit becoming more like him even in what we do well. And by the way, they are piggybacking off this header of the chapter. Back in verse 1, you know, we request, exhort you in the Lord Jesus, just as you received instruction from us how to walk. And please God, just as you actually do walk, you're doing a good job, you excel still more. This is the theme of this section here. Keep doing better. However, there's a second reason why Paul gives this exhortation to excel still more. And it's because for all the affection, the real love they felt for everybody, they were actually still showing selfish conduct that was destroying their witness. Sounds weird, but that's what the text says. Look at verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> he says, and to make it your ambition, what they're urging them, we're urging you to excel some more and urging you to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. So after he gets on exhorting them to excel still more, he elaborates. What do I mean? How do you need to get better at loving? And he tells them to make it their ambition to do three things. First of all, I want to park on that term, make it your ambition for a second. That's the Greek word, philotimeome. See that philo, Philadelphia, love of the brethren, philotimeome, love of the honor of something. Okay? Why, do we, why is this worth pointing out? Well, this term is what they use for philanthropy in Greek society back then. So if you were a wealthy citizen that wanted to bless your community and build a library or something, you know, whatever you want to do, whatever philanthropic act you wanted to do, the verb for that was this, philotimeome. 
that you are loving the honor of doing it, that you were under no compulsion to do it, but because you knew it was right and honorable and good to use the blessings you had to serve others, you would do it. It was an honorable thing to do, and therefore you loved doing it because it was honorable. That's what Paul's exhorting here, and his companions as well, that these things we're telling you are not dry duty. This isn't oh, we're being commanded to do this, so we better get it together and do it. No, he's saying, no, these are honorable things you want to be excited to do. God is calling you to love doing these things. These are blessings that you get the privilege to do, not the duty to do. That's how he's giving us that perspective. By the way, that's a good way to kind of check ourselves Are we looking at what God calls us to do as this duty we have to do? Or are we seeing it as an honor that we get to do them? Do we see the blessing in God calling us to do these things? Because that's how Paul and his buddies are phrasing it. That's the scriptural example we see here. It's an honor to do these things. And what are these three things? Let's take a look at each of them. First of all, he says, to lead a quiet life. Literally in Greek, that means just to be quiet. This is a word they use for rest, like on the Sabbath, things like that. But when you're using it in the context of someone's walk and activities, it refers to like the opposite of wild, crazy living. Okay? Lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business. That means like provide for yourself and your own instead of being a busybody into others. Take care of your business, your family. Don't mess with other people's business. Okay? Or how about work with your hands? That's a command to provide for yourself on your own. Provide well like you're being called to instead of being a burden to others. And then all three of these are in present tense, meaning these are things to be doing continually or as a habit. It wasn't a one-time thing. Hey, make sure you take care of this, this, and this. It wasn't a grocery list. Check them off and get them done. It was, no, this is what your life should be. Continuous practice. Now, it's worth asking, how do I know that's what he means by these three phrases? They're fairly broad phrases. You could take them a couple different ways. But I'm confident that is what is meant by all three of those phrases uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, If you get into the Greek details and things like that, there's some things when you study the language where you can be more certain when they use this phrase, they are leaning this direction, typically mean this by it. So yes, some of it's the language study, but some of it, a lot of it, in fact, we can be sure is because Paul and his buddies reiterate these exact same things to the Thessalonians in their next letter, and they get a lot more explicit to make it obvious exactly what they meant by them. Take a look. Go ahead and turn to the next book over, 2 Thessalonians. Probably just a page or two over in your Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6, he addresses the exact same problems, which means they must not have gotten it the first time. And by the way, they didn't get it the first time when, when Paul was teaching them. If the apostle Paul can teach a group of people something and they don't get it the first time, that's really encouraging to me. (laughs) Okay? 
But the Thessalonians didn't get it. So look what he says when he kind of spells it out for him a little better the second time. Starting in verse 6 there, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, look, he's getting serious, okay? You didn't get it. Let's make this clear. That you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Back to what we were talking about before. And not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. Notice the same phrase that we saw. Moving on to verse 8 there. He says, Nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Again, provide. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for use that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Again, same idea he was talking about in the other book. And in the last few verses, he has even more. It says, for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. So you see those same three commands just showing up over and over again? This is Paul. Again, same believers, Paul and his buddies, same people writing the letter to the same audience, addressing the same problem. Let's really spell it out for you. So that's why I'm confident what he's talking about in 9 through 12 is this. Okay? Issues with how they're living. But do you also notice how he kind of turned up the heat a little bit there? First time back in 1 Thessalonians, pretty even-keeled very nice, gracious way of doing it. There's still grace in this, but he's definitely turning up the heat a little bit here. Another, another thing we can see as an example for our own discipleship, is this idea that we want to show grace, yet we shouldn't be afraid to be very clear with our brothers and sisters in Christ when they're not getting it. If I notice a problem in my brother or sister's life, yes, I should be very loving and gracious and gentle to point that out. If, especially, if I can, especially if I'm rooting it in God's word. If it's still a problem later, I should still be gracious and loving. And I would still say gentle, but there definitely needs to be a little more pointedness. Look, this is what God's word says. You need to do this. Okay, we can't be afraid. We tend to be one of two things. We tend to be too afraid to say anything in the first place when we see areas of concern, or we tend to go straight to bringing the hammer down. We need to be willing to speak up, but always willing to show grace, yet also recognizing sometimes you've got to be a little more pointed in how you show that grace. Paul and his buddies did that right there. They said, we got to address this. You didn't get it. We're going to address it again and make sure there's no doubt what it is we're addressing here. Okay? So go back to our passage here. Notice in our original passage the grounding for why this is so important. Why does it matter how they're living in these ways? Why is that such a big deal? Notice that purpose clause. So that. Don't miss those things. That's those connections. That's telling us why verse 11 is so important. Explain it in verse 12 so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. It's because this carousing, this crazy life that some of them were tempted to live and leeching off others because they were being irresponsible is being seen by those outside the church. 
I have in your notes some further study on just some other verses for how God's word defines what behaving properly means. For the sake of time, we're not going to go into it. But this idea of being exhorted to behave properly is in other parts of scripture. So we see all this. We see it being a problem with the Thessalonians. But up to this point, you may rightly be wondering a couple things. Number one, this isn't that kind of church, so why are we worried about this? <laughs> Number two, how does this, if you're really being sharp and looking at the text around it, how does this fit into the context? How does this fit into talking about sexual purity and then hitting this and then going on to eschatology, end time stuff? Why is this sandwich in the middle? What's the connection? Why do we care about this? Hopefully you've had some good exhortations for your own Christian living and discipleship up to this point, but we haven't really gotten to the, the, the point. Okay. <clears throat> Verses 9 through 12 are addressing deficient conduct, but the following two large sections about end time stuff are addressing its cause. Bad theology. That's where it comes from. That's why this passage is here. Their theology wasn't sharp enough, a little lopsided, and they saw it showing up in their conduct. It's just like the passage right before it, verses 1 through 8. It's a longer passage because he kind of interweaves the theology in the conduct. He's saying address these areas of sexual purity, but he's kind of threading through some of the theological principles about why it's a big deal. Matter of fact, just to make that clear, that's why you'll recall if you were here in July, we spent a second Sunday going back through and developing that theology still further. The theology was necessary for the conduct to be right. It's like when you go to the doctor. When you go to the doctor and there's a problem that's called, that you're having problems from some sort of condition. You don't even know what the condition is yet. You just know you're having problems. What's the first thing the doctor's going to do? The first time you go in there, he or she is going to figure out, how do I get the symptoms under control? But if that doctor is good at their job, then they're going to figure out what's the root cause and tell you what you need to do to fix that. That's what these guys are doing here. Verses 9 through 12 are not really the problem. Verses 9 through 12 are the symptoms. The next couple sections are the problem that was creating those symptoms. They're rebuking problems with conduct that are merely symptoms of bad theology. And then they're going on to address that theology. Again, another good pattern for us in discipleship. If we're only just catching what people do that's wrong and not figuring out what do people think where is their understanding of God's word wrong that is leading them to think that's okay? We've missed the boat, and they're just going to go right back. Discipleship has to get to the heart of what's really going on. And that's what they're trying to do here. So what's present here that is all too common in Christianity, we can't lose sight of this, is that they hadn't gotten deep enough on their theology, so practice suffered. And as I asked at the beginning, some of us have that attitude that theology, that's fine for the pastor, that's fine for the seminaries, that's fine for the weird guys who just really like to read up on that stuff in our church, but theology isn't for me. I can't follow that stuff. It's too deep. It's too complicated. I can't figure it out. 
I'll leave it to those guys. Yet God's word is proclaiming to us very clearly here, you can't live in a way to please God without theology being right. You can't settle for fluff. You can't settle for shallow. Earlier, we saw they didn't fully understand God's views of human sexuality, so they laid out not just the commands, but the theological grounding for why the behavior needed to change. The Thessalonians knew they were supposed to love others, and they really did. This wasn't just lazy Christians who didn't care. They cared. They loved others. But they hadn't gotten enough discipleship to know what that really was supposed to look like. They didn't know enough of of God's character and what he was like to be able to live that out for the communities around them, for the unbelieving world. So they were failing to practice it well. In this case specifically, based on the context of them needing to address eschatology, all this end time stuff, in both the Thessalonians letters, by the way, he comes back to it in 2 Thessalonians too, just like the problems, the behavior problems, the inference by pretty much every conservative evangelical theologian, myself included, is that their lopsided theology about eschatology about end times is what led them to believe that since Christ, you know, Christ is supposed to come back any moment, right? So what you kind of read between the lines there is that they were so convinced Christ is about to come back any moment, it didn't matter how they lived anymore. What does it matter if I show up to my job, Christ is going to come back tomorrow? What does it matter if we run out of food in two weeks if Christ is going to come back tomorrow? And then when you run out of food in two weeks, well, I guess I'm stuck asking other people to, to bail me out, but that's okay. I don't have to build up that much ill will because Christ is still going to come back tomorrow, right? They were lopsided. They were addressing this. They were right to be excited for Christ to come back. Okay, And by the way, we reinforce this from other passages. In chapter 1, for example, Paul hints that they, they, he praises them for anticipating Christ. Take a look at 1.10. He talks about how they've been eagerly you know, waiting for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. He was praising them that that's what they're doing. It wasn't wrong for them to be anticipating Christ. In chapter 5, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Any moment, it can happen. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he comes back to this talking about it coming any time. First couple of verses of chapter 2, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that's what we're looking forward to, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They're really concerned with when Christ is coming back. And guys, they're not wrong, okay? We should be eagerly anticipating that any moment Christ could come back. It could happen right now. (sighs) I keep hoping he'll take me up on that one of these times. But it could. If anything, we've swung the pendulum too far the other way. We don't anticipate enough that it could be any moment. But back then, they were anticipating so much that they were neglecting the other responsibilities that God had given to them. Okay, Paul has already addressed this gently in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, he's exhorting them 
um, and grounding this theology, all this, but they actually reverse the order in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, he actually hits eschatology first in chapter 2 and then goes on to the behavior in chapter 3. I liken that to the doctor example. So you went to the doctor the first time, he takes care of the symptoms, then tells you what the problem is and what you need to do, right? If you go back to the doctor with the same problems because you didn't take his advice the first time, how's he going to have that conversation? He's going to say, no, I told you the first time, here's the problem. Get it together, pal. And yes, I'll still help you with the symptoms, right? That's why he flips it from one letter to the other, because they didn't listen. Some of us have had that conversation with the doctor and know that walk of shame, right? Okay, that's what's going on here. So you got to cut the Thessalonians a little bit of slack. You know, we're 2,000 years after the fact, right? We swing the pendulum too far. It's been 2,000 years. Maybe Christ will come back. Maybe No, it could still happen any moment, right? But when Paul and his buddies are writing this letter, this is one of the first letters he wrote. All the adults among the Thessalonians were alive when Jesus Christ was buried and resurrected. That's how close this was historically. So for them to think, he's coming right back. That was a... You know, you can understand that expectation, but they needed to realize their community was falling apart. They were having a bad witness because they were overemphasizing one area of theology and getting some other weird views that crept in and neglecting other areas of theology. You have a sad result that their witness was suffering. Now, we don't have that exact same problem. As far as I can tell, there aren't a bunch of people quitting work to wait for Jesus to come. If you do, talk to me later. Get you straightened out. But we still have the same root problems they did. They had lopsided theology that led them to live in a selfish way. And they could have avoided it if they would have been deeper in their theology. So how do we transport this? What do we do with this text? How does this look like in our lives today? Because we don't have the specific problems they had, but we have the same problems they had. There's two things we have to take from this. Two things that we cannot forget The Thessalonians needed to be reminded and rebuked of that I'm too afraid that we do today as well, myself included. Here's the first thing. This is the symptoms part, and that is we need to live and love well because our lives are not about us. I don't know how many different ways and times we all need reminded of this, but it's not about us. You remember, we are called to be ambassadors for Christ. Get that from 2 Corinthians 5.20. It's a popular passage. We're ambassadors for Christ. That's great. Great to be an ambassador. But do we ever stop and think about what that means? If I'm an ambassador for Christ, being an ambassador is not just about mooching off of someone else's goodwill. Being an ambassador is not just about diplomatic immunity and getting to park where you want. Being an ambassador means your whole mission is to represent that other person, and that means personal sacrifice because it's not about you. 
If the United States ever called me up and says, hey, we want you to be the ambassador to Italy. Well, all right, sure. If I go there and I act like a fool, I don't just make myself look bad. I make the administration and country that sent me look bad. Because my whole purpose in being there is to represent them. If we as Christians do not live the way God has called us to live, if we just worry about us and are not concerned, if we think our lives are about us and not about Him, then we start living in ways that reflect poorly on the God who has called us and sent us. Those are high stakes. Ambassadors are only there to represent. If I'm an ambassador, I'm not allowed to express my own opinions, I express the one who sends me their opinions. I'm not allowed to live according to my personal code. I need to live according to the person who sent me's code because I am representing that person. I'm not there to accomplish my goals. I'm there to accomplish that person's goals. That's the job of an ambassador. But how do we live? Are we living our lives to make sure people know what my opinions are? To make sure I get to live the way I want to and I feel fulfilled? Do I live to make sure that people are seeing me and know who I am? Am I living so that people are knowing only what I want them to know? and seeing what I want them to see, and representing myself? Am I accomplishing my goals in life? That's not an ambassador. That's, at best, loosely affiliated. We're called to be ambassadors. Romans chapter 6 is explicit about this. None of us are free agents. Romans 6, look it up. He says, you were a slave to sin, now you're a slave to Christ. There's nothing in between. That's what our lives are meant to be. If God has called us, he has called us to be a slave to Christ. We don't get to go out and do what feels good to us. Our lives are about pleasing the master. And that is good and right and holy the way God designed it to be. And yes, we are most blessed in that. But that's not why we do it. We do it because we owe it to him. He can rightfully demand that of us. He is the creator. We can't lose that perspective. God expects Christians to be model citizens. Obviously, there are times where what the culture considers a model citizen might conflict with God's word, and there's going to be clash there. But beyond that, God expects us to live upright in the context in which he has placed us. Why is that? He's left us in a watching world to prove that he is real and that his ways are best. God forbid that someone criticize me for, some, for anything other than holding to his word. 
Because once it does, once the world can say something negative about me that has anything to do with anything besides his word, that means my witness is suffering. That means this God must not be that powerful if I can just go off and be a bum like that. Must not be changing me that much. It matters. We are representing Christ to a world that will think he isn't real if we don't live to that standard. First Peter actually spends a lot of time talking about how we're supposed to walk in a lost world as witnesses. And one of the passages in there from chapter 2 I want us to take a quick look at. Verses 13 through 17, he says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. Oof, don't like that. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What's the ignorance of foolish men? People who think we're no different than them. In myself, I'm not. I'm just as much a sinner as they are. But I have God's Spirit living in me, representing Jesus Christ on earth. If they, they shouldn't be able to doubt that. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. I'm an ambassador. I use my freedom to serve God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. <laughs> nice and blunt. In case you missed his point, he just sums it up nicely there. That's our calling. God does care how we live in our communities because we are representing him. As soon as we start thinking our lives are our own to live, catch this, guys, this is so important. As soon as we start thinking our lives are our own to live, we start being selective about when it does and doesn't matter to be Christ-like. Let me say that again. As soon as we start thinking our lives are our own to live, we start being selective about when it does or doesn't matter to be Christ-like. I start picking and choosing. If my life is my own, I'll be Christ-like when I, when I think it matters. Instead of all the time. When I come to church, yeah, I better be Christ-like. Got to fit in. If I'm in a situation where, you know, my reputation might be damaged, okay, I should be Christ-like. But if I'm in a situation where I can get away with it, it's a person I don't like, I don't care if this person gets saved. It's a wrong attitude by itself. People aren't going to see this. This person can't do anything to me. I was really frustrated that day. I had a short temper. You, you got to understand, I'm really stressed right now. Do we catch ourselves saying that or at least thinking it? That's being selective. That's saying I'm going to be Christ-like when it suits me. And God says, no. We are representing Christ every moment of every day. And that is the call. Are we going to fail? Yes. We are still burdened by sin. But that doesn't change the fact that every moment of every day, we are striving to represent him better. So how are we going to do this? That's a high calling. How are we going to know what to do in all those situations that come up? How are we going to know what does it mean to please Christ right here, right now, in this situation that I never anticipated, and there's no specific passage of the Bible to talk about? 
How do I handle that? How do I fulfill this calling to be a faithful ambassador and live for him, not me? Embrace theology. That's the answer. That's what we have to do. Because that's what leads to the practice. I can't stress this enough. Theology and practice are not separate concepts. Too many of us have grown up our whole lives thinking the stuff you learn about the Bible, about the stories, and the theological structures and all that are one kind of Bible, and the do's and don'ts are another kind of thing. No, they're all the same. Good practice flows out of good theology. You can't really have one without the other. Understand what is the Bible at its core? Why did God leave us the Bible? Why do we have it? What is the purpose? What is the goal? What is the reason for being of Scripture? The reason God gave us His Word is to reveal who He is. That's why He gave us His Word. Every page, someone likes to say, from Genesis to maps. Every page, every inspired word in your Bible is there to reveal who God is. Reveal it through the words he said. Reveal it through the actions he's done. When God gives us commands, those commands aren't because the commands matter. Those commands are given because God wants us to reflect his character. Let me show you who I am by telling you what things are priorities to me. When God gives you theology, that's saying, here's who I am. So you have a fuller picture of this God you serve. So you know how to represent him. the more we learn about who God is based on what he has said and done in his word, the more we will know how to act in light of him. And by the way, the more we will want to. Our creator is by definition the most beautiful, glorious, good thing in all of existence. The more we know who he is, the more we're going to want to be like that. The more we're going to want to do the things that please him. That's just a fringe benefit. Our behavior will be motivated by that. The Thessalonians' initial problem was that they hadn't had much time to learn all the theology before being left to practice their faith. They got cut loose too soon. It was God's gracious will. He had a plan. That's how we got First and Second Thessalonians to guide our own discipleship. But that's what happened at an earthly level. They got cut loose too soon. They had sincere faith, but didn't have the theology to know how to practice it. I think about this, a great example of this, I think about every time my boys learned what a new sport was. It's the most adorable thing. So, for example, <clears throat> they quickly learned on Sunday afternoons after church, I'm exhausted, I'm going to pass out and watch football when I get home. That's how I worship, do what you want. All right? But they discovered this football thing is pretty cool. So they would watch it, and what they would do as soon as they watched it, most adorable thing in the world, they would immediately go out to the backyard and try to play football. 
But guess what that looked like after watching 20 minutes of football on TV? It was not football. It involved a football, and it was a game. There was competition, but it was not really football. And that's okay. They hadn't learned it deep enough yet. They had just gotten a little taste of it. It was enough to make, make them excited. They really wanted it. They were excited about it, but they didn't really know it yet. Too often, we're satisfied with tossing a pigskin around when there's a whole glorious game to learn. It's not the same thing, and we're too often satisfied by the shadow, the faintest glimpse when there's a whole bigger picture out there for us. We need the example of Priscilla and Aquila. Take a look at their example in Acts 18. This is a great story. You guys know who Apollos is, right? He was well-known, well-regarded as one of the greatest preachers of biblical times. You can read further on into Acts. You can read the references Paul makes to him in the Corinthian letters. He was well-regarded as an amazing preacher. This is the first time he shows up on the scene here in Acts 18. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus. He was mighty in the Scriptures. Remember, Scriptures was just the Old Testament at this time. The man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So wait a minute. This guy is a fervent dude, great preacher, loves the word, preaching the word accurately, but his theology only went through the baptism of John. He knew Jesus was out. He was preaching Jesus, but he didn't know all that followed with the rest of Jesus' life. He, it's not clear what he was missing, but probably he did, wasn't teaching everything about the death and burial and resurrection or the establishment of the church. Like There was clearly stuff he was missing, even though he was faithful and preaching accurately and fervently and diligently and well. There was still stuff missing. But I love this. When he began to speak out bowling the synagogue, well, he did that because he was bold, wants to share Christ as he should, as any new believer or old believer should. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, these were former disciples of Paul's, they knew their stuff. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They said, look, dude, love that you're on fire. Love that you want to share your faith. We often see that and say, great, this guy's taken care of. Let me move on to the next guy. They said, no, wait, wait. Let's take this. Let's take your theology a little deeper. Hone it down a little bit. Make sure you know what you're talking about. And then Apollos goes on to become one of the greatest preachers of the New Testament era. But that probably wouldn't have happened if two regular lay people weren't bold enough to come up to this eloquent, amazing speaker who was preaching well and say, you know what? You're missing some things, bud. Let's help you out here. Get to sharpen you up a little bit. Please, let's keep the line to only 10 deep when you come up to me after the service. <laughs> All right? But that's, we would not have had the, that great preaching, that influence on the early church if, if believers, regular lay people, didn't have to be an apostle, weren't willing to step up and disciple and hone theology. Nothing wrong with his practice. He was doing exactly what he should have been doing but his theology was off. Thessalonians knew they were supposed to love others, but
but weak theology led them to fail in how they loved others in significant ways. Knowing just the basic concept wasn't enough to please God. Does that sound familiar? How many people say, oh, well, God is love. God tells us to love other people. That's out of the Bible. But how many people do we see out in our society today that their definition of what love is and what God's love is and how to love people in a godly fashion is nothing like what the Bible says. God's love. God said, love people. I'm doing that. I must be fine. No, that's theology that's a millimeter deep. It's accurate. God is love. He has told us to love one another. It's accurate, guys. But it's not deep enough to actually give correct behavior. Okay, that's something we got to be able to recognize in ourselves and in others. We need to be ready to jump in and serve God as best we know how as soon as we're saved. There's no level you have to attain before you can be an effective disciple. If you were saved yesterday, God is calling you to go out and make disciples. But just like all of us, we're called to make disciples and be disciples and constantly grow in our knowledge of who God is through the revelation of his word. Those who are discipling people who are younger in the faith need to realize it can't end with the basics of the gospel or we failed. We sent out a bunch of weak Christians who are probably going to mess up and have a bad witness and probably even be discouraged in their faith. It might be genuine Christians. God can still show grace and get them out of that. But we're at the very least sent into a lot of heartache. We need to realize it can't end with the basis of the gospel or else we shouldn't be surprised when their actions are unbiblical. Get that. Don't be surprised if weak theology ends up with bad practice. The two are intricately linked. So whenever there are questions about behavior and practice, it's our theology that decides what the proper response is. That's how I decide. The Bible can't cover every possible situation I'm going to encounter in life in explicit, here, do exactly this kind of detail. Yet, it is everything we need to know how to live and please God. How does that work? It's because in every situation... Our theology determines the proper response. I ask myself, what do I know about who God is and what he has revealed that informs how I should respond here? I'm an ambassador. I got to represent Christ. What do I know about Christ? What do I know about God's priorities so I can represent those? What do I know about who God is so I can be like him here? That's why theology is so, so critical. Too many so-called Christians, you guys see that stat that came out about how America might not be a majority Christian nation in the next generation or two? Guys, I got news for you. We already crossed that line a while ago. People still say they're Christian. That doesn't mean they are. Okay? There's way too many of those people in that camp in our culture today that embrace a version of the gospel that is so shallow, and here preaching that teaches so little that it is no surprise that many of their lives don't resemble the Bible at all. And they have no idea. That's the tragedy. 
Nobody was willing to step up and say, wait a minute, your theology is off. I love you, brother. I love the enthusiasm. I love that you want to serve Christ. Let's figure out what his word really says so you know how to do it. There's not enough of that in churches today. And it starts at the top. Starts with the preachers, filters on down. It's got to be at all levels. But it's out there. But hang on, guys. How about here? Let's not, let's not be one of those churches that loves to preach about the people out there. Let's look at ourselves for a second. How many people here have really taken theology seriously for themselves? Have really had a hunger to know what does God's word really say about everything that is in this faith? There's some good ministries we have here. Uh, quick show of hands. How many of you guys at some point, at any point, have been through either Faithful Men or Growing Deeper? It's been called different things. How many of you guys have been through that at some point? It's a good number of people. That's a great, very intentional way of studying theology. If you've been attending here for more than a year, why haven't you? It's okay. I don't want to step on toes. I get it. That's a commitment. Not everybody can make that kind of commitment. But... Let me still put it out there. Maybe that specific way of getting deeper in theology doesn't fit where God has you in life. But is there at least a hunger to do something like it? Do we care about that theology? How many of us are really studying the Bible deeply? And no, I don't mean a five-minute devotion in the morning. But really taking the time to figure out what is God's word saying, not what is somebody's little advice to get me through my day. What is God's word really speaking for itself? Not what does somebody else think it says? How many of us have been saved for a long time, yet are still content with only knowing the most basic details of the faith? That's a trouble sign. Guys, I, want, I bring all this up. I hope that's a challenge to those that needs a challenge. I hope it's not a discouragement to those who, need to be, who should be encouraged for being faithful. But you've got to understand, this is something that we, ad we address all the time. I can't tell you how many times Pastor Jim gets criticized for the depth of his teaching. Mostly people outside the church. Don't hear too much from people inside the church. But say, that's too deep. That's too much detail. Why do people care about that? Why does a layperson need to know about that? We just spent a week or two going over the difference between the general call and the effective call. Why does that matter? Who cares? That's just seminary talk. Knowing theology matters. You've all, if you've been here the whole time that Jim has been here, and probably before, I just can't speak to that, there's been theologically rich preaching here for at least the last 25 years. Going deep, pushing people's understanding, pushing for people to really know what does God's word really say? What does the faith really look like? And it's because of the conviction that knowing all that God has revealed about himself is the only right way to motivate and sharpen our behavior to be pleasing to God. That's the only way to do it. If we just give you the do's and don'ts, you can do all the right things and be exactly wrong. It comes from knowing God, knowing who he has revealed himself to be. That's theology. You have to have that to know how to please him, to motivate that behavior. 
or else you're going to fall right back in the same sin habits because there's not a reason not to. It's, you have to have those things. Let me just end on one last thing that another, I think it's a misperception that if we get this, the rest of studying theology will make sense. And guys, it's what you see up there now. Knowing God is the reward of Christianity. Knowing God is the reward of Christianity. Knowing who he is, that's the reward. When we get to heaven, what we're looking forward to, what we're anticipating is the fact that when we get to heaven, it's not that life will be comfortable and easy. It's not that there will be streets of gold. Those are some nice perks. That's not what heaven is about. Getting to heaven, the joy, the blessing of heaven is that we will finally see God for who he is because we have been cleansed from sin. We will finally truly know God. And even then, it won't be exhaustive because our infinite God will take all of eternity to keep learning more about. Yet, the joy, what will make us fall on our faces every day for eternity is seeing our creator for who he is. That's what Christianity is steering us toward. That's what our whole lives are about. That's the reward. Knowing God is not the means to the reward. Knowing God is not something you got to suffer through as a part of the faith to someday get to that reward. No, it's not even a bonus reward. Knowing God is the reward. That is the most satisfying, joyful blessing in all of existence. And we can start doing it now. We have the tools to know who our God is. And once we use those tools, we will live like him and represent him the way he has called us to, to a world that can't see it yet and needs someone to show them who the real God is. That's the mission. Let's do that. Let's embrace the theology that God has given us because it is the reward. Let's pray. Father, we cannot begin to thank you for the fact that as creatures, sinful ones at that, you have given us the grace to reveal yourself to us. Father, we pray that we don't take that for granted, even as we are limited in our ability to understand now, that we don't take for granted you have given us your word, your divine revelation of who you are. Father, forgive us for where we reduce your revelation to mere rules for life. Father, we want to know you. We want to be like you because we know there is nothing better in existence, that you are the most beautiful, glorious thing in existence, and you are the reward. We hunger for that reward, Father. Lord Jesus, come quickly. But in the meantime, we pray that you shape us, shape our hearts, shape our spirits by your word. Give us a hunger. Help us not to live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Today and every day, in Christ's name.